and turn to our passage today, which is 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 28, and we're going to be reading through chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, we have Michael Shera here preaching to us, and he will be focusing in on verses 1 and through 3 of chapter 3, but we're going to give, a, give him a running start here, looking at 1 John 2, starting in verse 28. Read with me. And now, little children... Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You may have a seat. Today we want to especially be keeping in our prayers Tom and Marianne Barlow as our missionaries serving in Columbus, Ohio. They are doing missionary recruiting and care there, so we want to be praying for them. We also want to be praying for the men coming back from men's retreat, that that time was a time to bond together and also to get ready for the work that's here back at home. So pray with me now. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord who made heaven and earth, who holds everything in his hands, Lord, we give praise to you. You who saw from the very beginning the story that you wanted to tell and have been writing it. And Lord, we are part of that story somehow because of your goodness, not because of ours. And so Lord, we just want to give praise and glory to you. We want to comfort those who are around us who are hurting Lord, there is no better comforter than the great one who has made them and who cares about every single thing, knows the number of their heads, or the hairs on their heads, excuse me. And Lord, we just ask that you would comfort them, that those who need to be convicted of the holiness of God would turn and repent and acknowledge you. And Lord, we pray for Tom and Marianne, as they are in Ohio, Lord, just strengthen them in their ministry that they would be able to bear much fruit for your kingdom. We pray for the men's retreat, that it was a time for men to be strengthened, to do the work that they need to do here at home. Lord, be honored and blessed by what you see your children doing here in this building today. Let this be a sweet-smelling offering to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First Peter 1 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So join us in singing this morning. And if he has redeemed me, I am not my own. The measure of my worth is his love alone. He declares my standing and he declares my state. So I will know myself by the name he gave. I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. I will honor him for this I know. I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. Stand and sing with us.
For you. Um, you are the holy God of all history, and it's so easy for us to, um, to tear our garments and change our behavior and rend our uh, image and our performance and what we look like and our perception. Only you can rend the garments of our hearts and make us new. So come transform us by your word and, and by your spirit today. We thank you for, uh, for this time in Jesus' name. Morning, Grace Orange. As you watch this, I will be up at the men's retreat with 90 plus of our Grace Orange men. I'll be preaching the morning message there, then we'll be heading home. But I want to introduce you to our guest preacher today. His name is Michael James Shera, my son. He's here with his wife, Taylor, who he met here at Grace, as well as their son, Ezra, their daughter, Piper, and their son, Asher. And Michael's a graduate of the Master's Seminary. He was an intern with us here. We sent them out uh, to be on pastoral staff at Grace Church of Rancho Cucamonga a number of years ago. So some of you know him well, and some of you have never met him. He loves Jesus. He loves the Word of God. He's a faithful communicator, gifted communicator of the Word. And I know you'll love and enjoy him today. So God bless you, Grace Orange, and we'll see you soon. I am not Michael Shera, but uh, I am introducing him. I think that was uh, Pastor Mike just trying to keep his position here and Michael not taking over. Uh, 
But uh, Michael and the Sharers, they came uh, to our church a number of years ago. He was, uh, I think, in junior high. Um, but he, uh, as he got into high school, um, he, I forget the entrance on how he started leading worship, but um, he began leading worship in um, our youth group. And, um, and it was amazing. If you've been in a youth group, you know that um, especially the guys have a hard time singing and participating. But, uh, but Michael got up there and, um, and just sang from his heart. He, he actually just worshiped the Lord and you wanted to worship with him. And so he led us in that. And then, um, and then we uh, went to a Rancho uh, Cucamonga Church uh, in Gray, uh, Grace Rancho Cucamonga uh, needed a lot of help. It was, uh, the church was headed to be kind of closed down uh, and uh, so there was a revitalization effort that uh, was going on there and I remember going there and you know they have a whole kids department and, and nursery and toys and everything but there were no children, uh, no families there was no youth, junior high, high school. Uh, the, I think the uh, youngest person was like 29 or 30. And then uh, a number of adults just kind of hanging on. And I thought, man, I, you know, this is tough. I think maybe it's okay that these guys go join another church and you just shut this thing down. But um, through uh, a lot of prayer and, uh, and, and Michael going, uh, to help that effort, the place is vitalized, and uh, the Lord threw some Holy Spirit gas on that place, and it is some place you want to go visit. Uh, it's packed. You got to get there early so you have a seat. But with that, bring us a word, Michael. It is a great joy to be here with you this morning. As Dan shared, I basically grew up here at this church, and this church is home to my wife and I, and we are so grateful for the Lord's influence of this church um, on our lives in many ways. Um, it's the men of this church, your elders here, that for me first were a clear expression of what it looks like to faithfully serve a church no matter what else you're doing, um, but being what you could properly describe as a churchman, someone, even though they might do many other things in life, who is clearly devoted to God, devoted to his church. I'm thankful for that example. I actually think of it often, and, and the men here, and just want to continue to emulate what they've done um, before me and many others. Um, I met my wife here at this church. We met when we were in junior high. Um, we didn't start dating when we were in junior high, um, but I'm grateful for that. We have three kids now, Ezra, Piper, and Asher. They are here somewhere. They were having so much fun in their class. They didn't want to leave their class um, during first service. Um, and then we were sent to Rancho five years ago in June, and friends, God has been so kind um, and so gracious and so generous in the ways that he has blessed our church there. Um, quicker than we ever could have thought, um, the church was able to be autonomous and on its own and have its own elders, and we praise the Lord for that. And he has brought people, and he is currently saving people, 
even just in the past few months, it's been remarkable to see God's work in saving people who had basically never been to church before and grew up from many different backgrounds. Um, I could go on and tell you many stories about the things God is doing at our church, but what I do want to tell you is that our church in Rancho um, loves this church dearly. Um, We pray for you often. In fact, this morning in our service, um, they're praying for you. Um, They might be doing it now, or maybe they're going to do it in a little bit. Um, And we are grateful for your partnership in the gospel. So I pass on a hearty hello, and we love you from the church, even though you may not personally know those people. This morning, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you have grabbed a pew Bible on the way in, or I think actually under a seat in front of you, this is on page 1022. If you're not familiar with looking at a Bible or you're new to church, the large numbers on your page are chapter numbers and the small numbers are verse numbers. We're going to be on page 1022. Do you have one of those if only statements that so many of us have? If only I could get this job or get those grades or get into this college. If only I could marry this kind of spouse. Maybe if only my spouse was this kind of way. Then my life would be what I want it to be. Then I would be happy. Then it would be good. Have you ever thought that way? Do you often think that way? This kind of question gets to the heart of what gives us hope. And what gives us hope is often what we love and what we worship. It's important to understand then what gives us hope because so often that which gives us hope molds our hearts like wax, not even our hearts, but our lives. And whatever we're placing our hope in, whatever we love, whatever we worship, we become like. And we become like the end of those things as well in our living. Perhaps the realization for you that your hope has not panned out to be what you thought it would, has left you bitter, angry, frustrated, dissatisfied, maybe even depressed with life. If you've experienced this in life or you experienced that this morning, you know good and well that so many of the things that we hope in do, in fact, disappoint us, even the best of them. Have you thought about that if only? You should ask yourself the question, how has that gone? When we place our help in fateful things, we're bound to be disappointed. And so you and I, no matter who you are today, if you've come to Grace Orange for the first time or you've been here for 50 years, no matter who you are, you need to set your sights on a real hope, a hope that lasts, a hope that produces on its promises And that brings to fulfillment what it promises. You need a hope that goes beyond the here and now. You need a hope that goes into eternity. A hope that really delivers. A hope that only God can provide. And in 1 John 3 this morning, we're going to see that the hope of a Christian is a hope that purifies that gets to work in your life, that directs our lives towards holiness rather than worldliness. Because it's a hope rooted in our status as God's children and as God's children, the future that awaits for us. So if you would, look to 1 John 
chapter 3, and I know Winston read them, but I want to read verses 1 to 3 for us again quickly. Verse 1 says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we confess that on our own, we can produce no good thing. That on our own, we can produce no hope that lasts. Lord, even that left to ourselves, we're going to struggle to understand your truth for us. So Lord, please work in us now. Lord, we believe you're powerful and your spirit is powerful, so we pray that through the words of Scripture, our hearts would be enlivened our lives would begin to take on more and more Christ-like shape. And Lord, from your truth, we pray that much hope would be produced within our hearts, hope that produces action. We pray this all in your name. Amen. The main point of 1 John 3, 1-3, is that because you are God's child... You will be like him, and so today you should live like him. Because we are God's children, we will be like him, and so we should live like him. The Apostle John teaches us this truth within the context of 1 John, a book that he's written for your assurance, Christian. He wants to assure you, to show you what Christian living looks like, to hopefully encourage you that these things are happening in your life, and if they're not, to push you and propel you forward to live like what you see. He talks about things that are confronting, that obedience is necessary in the Christian life, that we're to do away with the things of the world. He talks about things that are comforting, that if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, we can be sure that our sins are forgiven. Chapter 2, because Christ is our propitiation, the payment for our sins and our advocate. And it's within all of this context, and within an immediate context here that Winston read for us, as John is honing in on obedience, that we get a bit of a parenthesis here. As John is saying, you must be righteous, don't be lawless, don't go on sinning, but pursue that which God calls you to, he inserts a necessary and a happy parenthesis as he focuses in, and he says, look at God's love towards us says, see what kind of love the Father has given us. Perhaps in a different translation in your scripture, it would say, see what great love God has given us. And so, from that reality, we understand three things that I've already stated. We are God's children. We will be like him, and so we should live like him. Consider with me verse 1 in the reality that you are God's child. You are God's child. John is so enamored with God's love. He's enamored with God's love in his gospel, as he says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In John 13.34, he would tell us that because of our love that models his love for us, 
the world will know we are His. And it's in 1 John that he expands upon this theme of love and tells us that true love and love within us comes from God because we only love because He first loved us. And that love does, in fact, for God, produce obedience in us and love for one another. And he tells us here, that God's love is so great, so marvelous, so immense for a Christian that you can be called God's child. One of the most beautiful, one of the most glorious and breathtaking realities of the Christian faith is that you have been adopted into God's family, being called a daughter, a son of the Most High King. I want to clarify something up front here, though, the second half of verse 1, you'll notice the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. This kind of love, and in fact, even being called God's child, not given to everybody, it's not for every human on earth, it's for those who've trusted in Christ that are born again, as we would see Jesus talking to Nicodemus about. What does it mean to be in Christ, to trust in Christ, to be his child, it means that you have recognized your grievous sin before a holy God. You've understood your need for a Savior. And in looking for that Savior, you've seen Christ as the divine God-man as your Savior, who would live for you and, in fact, has died for you. And in dying for you, paid all the payment for your sins, rose again three days later, defeating sin and death, so that anybody, anyone, who would trust in him, who would repent and turn in faith toward Jesus Christ, will be saved. There may be some of you who have walked in today and you know, I'm not God's child because I do not know him and I have not trusted in him. Let me call you today, as Christ does, to come unto him, to repent, to believe in him, so that you could be his child. All those who come to Christ are forgiven their sins and are justified. That word meaning that you are declared righteous, that you are given a new status, that your sins are forgiven and Christ's blood covers you. Your sin is no longer held against you. Justification, as J.I. Packer puts it, is the most primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. Then a few moments later, he says that our adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel, the highest privilege. Justification is the legal declaration by the divine judge that the guilty person, that is you, is declared righteous. Adoption is when that divine judge takes you into his family and makes you his own. Adoption is a true gift of grace. Yes, we are pardoned in salvation. Yes, we are accepted by God. We have fellowship him. With him, and even more, we are adopted. Galatians 4 makes us so clear when it says God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. In adoption, we understand the most sensational truth that God delights to lavishly bless his children, that he's never content to do the bare minimum, merely save or solely accomplish something. No, he lavishly, he he richly blesses you. This is seen in the fact that you can be called, because of this great love, children of God. And you're not just given a title here. 
You're not just slapped on a name tag. Something more is done. You are given this status. And this is why John says in verse 1 that we should be called children of God. We're not just called, listen, and so we are. He has made you his own. He has welcomed you in. He's given you the family crest. He's crowned you with an inheritance that is beyond compare. And he has seated you at the table by himself so that you might feast on the riches of the king's love as a son or daughter of the most high king. He's blessed you immeasurably, and he has done this for you, brothers and sisters. You who were far off and who were headlong in sin. You who had no thought of him nor care for him. You who were content to pursue your own pleasure as children of wrath. You, an orphan at the fall, wandering, scraping the streets for anything you might find no hope and nothing to offer. God doesn't look around for children or heirs who might be able to give him something. You can think of the play, Annie. Annie's this orphan. And and there's some sort of, I think, reward or money tied to her. And so the people who run the orphanage she's in want to adopt Annie for themselves, don't they? Because they want what she has to offer. God is not like that. Instead, God is like Daddy Warbucks, who who has all that he needs on his own and yet loves Annie, and so he adopts her, and this is how God loves you. It's like in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 7, when God tells Israel, I have loved you because I have decided to set my love on you, and this is how God loves you. He didn't just take you off the streets and feed you. No, he found you. He picked up your chin. He didn't just clothe you and give you a job. He said, come, be mine. Have all that is mine because all I have is yours. I'm making you a son, a child. Welcome in. This is remarkable and marvelous love. Because you are God's children, you can truly know God. Not the kind of knowing that just takes in information and stores it, but the kind of knowing that experiences what it knows. True knowing. I can remember when Ezra first uh, started playing with balls. He was probably one and a half, and we had this tiny little basketball hoop. And he was like, just yeah, not tall enough to kind of stick it in the hoop. And um, he knew that basketball was fun because he'd run and give me the ball. He'd shoot it in the hoop. I'd shoot it in the hoop, and I'd make it, and he would just be so excited, right? But that day came when Ezra really knew that playing basketball was fun. That, in fact... If he made the shot, he could experience this himself, and we were cheering, and he's little, and we're just hugging him, and he's having the best time. He didn't just know and look and see. He knew. He experienced it. And that's what you have, dear children. In Christ, the Father has the truest kind of affection for you. You can think of the love you have for your child, nine months of waiting, knowing you love them, and then how it spills over when you hold them in your hands for the very first time, parents. In that moment, you know, without a doubt, no matter what this child turns out to be or what they are, I love them. And God has this kind of innate sense of love for you because you are his child. God is your perfect parent. He's faithful in love and care. He's generous and thoughtful. He's interested in all you do. He's respecting of your individuality and yet wise and skillful in training us, in guiding us, always available and helping us to find ourselves in maturity, integrity, and uprightness and faithfulness. Being God's child means the Father's heart 
is inclined towards you continually. He is the truest kind of affection for you, closeness, affection, and generosity of the heart of his love for you. His provision, his goodness, his kindness, they are all yours. This isn't just a bonus gift that God thought up along the way, though. Ephesians 1 would tell us that you were predestined for adoption as sons. This has always been planned as part of your salvation. Part and parcel of your salvation is the fact that you're adopted and called a child. You're born again, and when you are born again, into a new family, with God as your father, with every Christian as your brother and sister, and with Christ as your brother. Is this not remarkable love? I was struck as we sung that song, I Am Not My Own, when it said, the measure of my worth is his love alone. And that's so true. The measure of our worth is this love, this deep love, this satisfying love, this never-ending love that isn't dependent on our own merit or trying to get something from us. God does not love you more because you are a certain way that is different than others. God does not love you more because you do something. Friends, if you're trying to earn God's love, even if you are in Christ, and you just find yourself as you're burdened with sin trying to work towards receiving his love, know that he's right there. You don't have to work for it. He's lavishly blessed you with it, and you can rest in it. And so this love is grounds for your assurance because those whom God calls his children, he will never strip of the family name. He will never cast out. He may discipline you for a time, as Hebrews tells us any loving father does, because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And so you may feel his hand of discipline, but he will never turn away from you or turn his back on you or send you away. There's so much more we could say. You've been brought into divine safety, certainty, and the great affection of God. We could stand up one by one and enlist the ways that God is kind to us as a father. But we must understand this basic reality that today you are God's child. And it's a blessed reality and yet we know that even more awaits because 1 John 3.2 says this. The reason why the, oh sorry, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him. And so we see not number one, that we are God's child, but number two, because you are God's child, you will be like him. The reason somebody would have adopted an individual in the first century is because they didn't have an heir of their own. And so they would have gone looking for a man, a full-grown man, not a child like we often adopt today, who might have had promise and would have been something and they could have given their earthly estate to God has made you his heir because you are his child. And it's not just an earthly inheritance, but it's an inheritance of glory that awaits for us in eternity. Listen to Romans 8, 16, and 17. We are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or perhaps you could put it this way, that we could share in his glory. The sum and substance of your inheritance as God's child is that you will share in the glory of Christ because what does it say? We shall see him as he is for we will be like him. And such likeness is going to be incredible. It will extend to our physical being as well as our mind and our character. 
Romans 8.23 ties this together as it shows us this is the full extent of our adoption. There's something more waiting even today. We ourselves, it says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait our adoption as sons. The full redemption of our bodies. The greatest blessing of our future inheritance will make actual for us all that was implicit today in adoption. Christ has promised to come again, and when he does, as Colossians 3, 2 would say, when Christ our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And as 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the twinkling of an eye in that moment, you and I will be given rejuvenated, renovated, renewed, glorious bodies like Christ's resurrection body. You will be glorified. That is to mean that your body will be imperishable and unstained and tainted from the sin that entangles it. The sin nature that it's stuck in now. It's because of this work of God that you will be made like him, that you will be able to see him. The fulfillment of your adoption. This is the great glory of adoption. The fact that in eternity, though now we see Christ in the scriptures and yet there's a bit of a veil, in eternity we will behold him face to face. Revelation 22 speaks of this reality when it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. To see the face of God and to see Christ truly as he is now, fully glorified in heaven, given the name that is above every name, will be glorious. And it should stop you in your tracks to even consider that this might be possible. Consider with me the Old Testament depiction of God's glory and his inapproachability. Moses says, God, please show me your glory. And God responds by saying, you cannot see my full glory. If anybody would to see my face, they cannot live. To truly behold God in his glory would be unthinkable. He puts Moses in the cleft and covers him with his hand and he just sees the back of God, like the feet of God. And yet he comes down even with just the tiniest glimpse of God's glory, shining. (laughs) Israel can't even look at him. He has to put a, a doily over his face. Isaiah sees the full glory of God, and what is his response? Woe is me. Ezekiel describes the intricacy of God's glory. He's trying to tell us what it is, and he's describing it. There's wheels within wheels, and he says to us, basically, this is the best I can do. This is what it is in words. Behold, the full glory of Christ will be marvelous, but it will not be so for all. If you have walked in the doors today and you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, your sins are not forgiven. And when you see Christ in the future, it will not be a joy for you, but it will be a terror. Because Revelation 19 describes Christ as the one who comes to tread out the the fury of the wrath of God, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God against sin. So I would call you today, do not wait any longer. Come to Christ, experience forgiveness and eternal life, so that on that day, when you stand before your maker, it will be the greatest joy to you, not the greatest terror. Oh, dear Christian, what joy it will be when our glorification comes into view, when we experience the full reality of our adoption, 
that we will be like him. In heaven, the barriers between redeemed humans and God will disappear. Understand that the fact that you will have a redeemed body means that the eternal state, eternity, will be physical. A new heavens and a new earth, and there will be a thousand joys if you can just picture what you've experienced in this life and the glory of it. It's remarkable, isn't it? I remember being in high school and hiking in Mammoth, and we got to this place, I think it was called Duck Lake, and I got in the water, and, and there it was, this ice-cold water, and you go under and you look under, and it's just this immense, like, glacier blue, blue like you've never seen before. One of the most remarkable things, and you just want to continue looking at it and seeing it, and though the cold water burns your eyes, you can't help but gaze at it. That is going to be dull in comparison to beholding the face of Christ and seeing him full arrayed in glory. We will see him and we will live and we will wonder if we had ever lived before we saw him because to see him will be remarkable. There is none so great and no such great sight as our Savior. This is what Jesus prayed for In John 17, when he said, Father, I want those who you have given me to be with me and to see my glory. No other sight could compare. Romans 8 says that this is what all of creation waits for. Everything is building up to this climax. We were created for God's glory and we will be able fully to live for God's glory then. You can think of it if somebody walked up and you said, hey, did you see the Super Bowl? You could say yes. And they'd say, did you really see the Super Bowl? You'd say, what do you mean? They'd say, were you there? To watch something on TV is one thing. We're just looking at pixels, right? But to be there and experience something is all the more glorious. And what awaits you in heaven is a full, unrestrained and untethered experience of God's glory, truly understanding and truly knowing all the heights, all the depths, all the lengths and breadths of the love of Christ for you, lavished upon you, unending. You will truly at once understand the full character of Christ, and yet you will grow moment by moment into a deeper understanding. It will be as good as it gets then, and it will only get better to see him, to understand him, because the heart and character of Christ will be ours to forever ponder, to forever revel in, and all that we do will be fueled by that. We will see his face all the more clearly because the cares of this world will not hold us back. Perhaps you've walked in this morning and it is hard for you to think of heaven because you are so weighed down. Your week has been hard. The business has gone wrong. You've been trampled by sickness. The kids have been a pester. Your marriage is in shambles. And it's hard to think of heaven. These cares, these enemies, they break your peace. And none of them will be there then. In heaven, nothing stands in the way of God's people enjoying God fully. You will not be bothered by Martha's cares, but you will be free, like Mary, to sit at the feet of Christ. With no idols in the way, with no cares in the way, with no sin or wrongs in the way. There will be no rival for the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. 
And I wonder, will heaven be sweet to you? Is it something you look forward to? Or might heaven, for some reason, at first seem dull to you? Because it's so different than what you pursue today. Friends, God is the prize of our salvation. And God himself is the prize of heaven. It will be an just eternal spiritual blessing and real blessing to enjoy him. He is the source of every joy. Every other joy is secondary and emanates from him. That will be true in heaven, but it is true today. The joys of life are meant to point us to him, to draw our gaze to him now like it will be on him then. So look to Christ. I remember John MacArthur talking about this, and um, somebody asked him, is heaven really going to be that great? Like, what's it really going to be like? And he said, I'm not too worried. I just want to be like the homeless guy at the pearly gates. I'm excited to be there. I'm reveling in it all. Friends, because God is the prize of heaven, and God is the prize of the gospel, you can bet that it will be remarkable, because that is a hope that delivers. And that is a hope that produces within us action. This isn't a hope or something you know that you're just meant to stick in your pocket and leave it there, stagnant. It's a hope that gets going and works in you. <laughs> you can't understand this. You, you, you can't grasp onto this kind of hope and be left the same. And this is why John tells us, because you will be like him, because you are God's child, number three, live like him. Live like him. Everyone who thus hopes in him, he says in verse 3, purifies himself as he is pure. Today we wear the perishable. And while we wait for the imperishable to be put on, we are in this process of what we call sanctification, growth and holiness on the road to being glorified. And while we wait, we purify ourselves. And this call to purify ourselves is much like that call, and it's the exact same call that God gave to his people in the Old Testament, to be holy for he is holy. First Peter makes this clear as he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. As God's child, this is just a matter of being true to type, true to your father, true to your savior, and true to the new creation that you've been made. John says that love for God, seeing God like this and hoping in him, produces obedience. For this is the love of God, he would say, to keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And we know they are not because we have been freed from the domain of darkness, put into the kingdom of his glorious son, the kingdom of light, to live. His commands are freeing for us. So we gladly follow him. And, and there could be those of you today who are here and you wonder, I want this. I'm looking to Christ. I want to be pure, but I don't know where to start. I just feel stuck in sin, trapped by it. So where do you start? Number one, you must look to Christ. That sight that you will have in heaven is that sight which is, produces life in you today. And where do you pursue that? You pursue it in his word. 
as God reveals himself to us in his word. His spirit works in us to enlighten our hearts, enliven our minds so that we might grasp the truth of, truth of who he is. When we see who he is, everything else falls to the wayside. As our sight grows more clear and sharpens and hones in on God, even today, it's almost as if everything falls into place. It's like that hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Why? Because when you grow in your love for God, everything else, particularly sin, becomes distasteful. You see it for what it is in light of who he is. And so pursuing a clear sight of God is where your purity must start. It must start because a growing love for God causes every other love to dissipate. But it can't just be this mental exercise. He says, purify yourselves, do something. It's as if John is saying, work hard at something. So you must repent, you must turn from your sin. You must do what Ephesians 4 says in putting off the old self. You must see it, acknowledge it, and confess it. By God's Spirit, empowered by Him, not even your own doing, confess your sins. And let me encourage you, don't just confess your sins to God. Yes, confess your sins to God. As David would say in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. Please confess your sin, though, to a brother or sister in Christ. And be ready in full repentance to experience and take on perhaps even some of the consequences here and now of your sin. But you can't just stop sinning. That's not where it ends. Sin must be replaced by worship. If you go on a diet, you're not going to get very far if you stop and just say, I, I'm just, just going to think about not having a burger and fries today. Not for breakfast, not for lunch, not for dinner. See where that gets you. Think about it long enough, you're going to want a burger and fries. Oh, you need to think about what you should eat. And I don't know what it is. Your doctor or the internet can tell you. But you need to focus on the right thing. And so you can't just stop sinning. It must be replaced. And the way that it is replaced, Ephesians 4 would tell us, is by renewing our minds. Looking to God. Looking to his word. Going to dear brothers and sisters to experience God's grace for you through them as they call you to holiness, as they help you look at what it might see, what it might look like to live for God today. And so you must renew your mind. And in renewing your mind, you then put on the new self in worship, honoring God created after the likeness of Christ. You can remember 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, behold, the old has gone and the new has come. You're meant to live in that newness, honoring God, worshiping Him. If you've been tempted to lie, Ephesians would tell you, lie no more, but rather tell the truth. If you've been tempted to steal or you've been tempted towards laziness, work hard, produce something, maybe even for others, and do it as Colossians 3 would say, to the glory of God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price a price, and so 1 Corinthians would tell you, glorify God in your bodies. Obedience to God is a 
key mark of a true Christian. Pursue it today. If you've failed this week, resolve. Bring someone alongside you. Purify yourself because he is pure. And friends, I'll repeat it again. You cannot do this on your own. Left to your own devices, even as a new creation, your own strength, you will fail at this endeavor. But you are not left to yourself. Romans 8 tells us that you have been given the spirit of God, that he dwells within you. This is the spirit that is described by Paul as the spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You can answer this out loud. Is that a powerful spirit? Yes, it's a powerful spirit. It's the most powerful spirit. The power of God Almighty dwells within you. And he says, gives life to your mortal bodies. You're not left to your own, so depend on him, dear Christian. Trust in him. Look to him. We're to purify ourselves, to pursue Christ-likeness today so that perhaps we might just have a taste of what it will be like to see him then and to be like him then. As a Christian, you ought to look forward to that hope and that inheritance and it ought to drive you to experience all the blessings of it that you might be able to gather together now. You need real hope. God offers you the hope of being his child. He gives you the hope of a glorious inheritance that nothing can compare to. Set your hope on this today that you might be formed into its likeness, that this hope might produce a true effect of this hope in your life. These aren't meant to be abstract ideas. They're meant to be put on and and taken with you every day this week. We look forward to that day when Christ returns, when we will be like him, and until that day, Yes, because there's hardship in the world and we experience suffering, but even more because we long for that glorious reality. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to train our sights on the hope of Christ. Lord, as we pursue you, we pray that the things of this life would become bitter and dull in comparison to the glory that awaits us and the glory that we see now. Lord, help us to pursue a clear sight of you so that we might know you, so that we might live for you. And Lord, might might we do this together? Might we encourage one another on in these realities all the more so that we might be built up into Christ who is the head? Lord, please do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Michael. The uh, night before uh, Jesus was crucified, he gathered with his disciples. He shared some things with them over a meal and a time together there that uh, they would need to know in the days ahead. Even though he had warned them several times that what was going to happen the next day, they didn't understand. Uh, Like us today, much of a God will be here.
how do I put it into practice and understand what that means? They, we struggle with the same things they struggle with. But um, Jesus basically told them, I'm not going to be here uh, uh, shortly. And then in a little while, you're going to see me again. Not physically, but spiritually in my life. As you would see the, the wind, you can't see, but you see the effects of the wind. So it is with the Spirit of God in our lives. When he's present, we see the evidence that he's here. Things are different in us. And Jesus was telling his disciples that, that last night he was together. And all of this relationship with God, both physically with them then and now spiritually for us for eternity, is based on something Jesus was going to do the very next day, and that was offer his life as a sacrifice to pay all penalty and judgment that could come against us. He bore all of our sin, our, our selfishness, our rebellion, uh, our arrogance, our pride, all the things apart from God, our neglect of him. He bore all of that in his body on the cross for us. That night in the meal that they had together, Jesus uh, took some bread and he said, this is my body which is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Then he took a cup from the dinner that night, and, and he said, um, this is like my blood, which is, will be sacrificed for you. It's a sacrifice of a new covenant, based, not based on animal sacrifice in the temple, but on the sacrifice of my very life for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. As oft as you do this, take the bread and the cup. You remember my death until I come. And so we remember that death because it's the ground, the foundation of our relationship with God. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And this morning, we remember the bread and the cup. We have a, a symbolic meal for you here in a, in a cup that's in the, the seat uh, right in front of you there. If you could find that. Um, each of you, and uh, we'll be taking this uh, cup together. There's a, a tab at the bottom that'll get you to the bread, and there's a, a tab at the top that'll get you to the, the cup, the liquid. Paul, in writing to the uh, believers in the city of Corinth, the, the Greek city, the, uh, he said, uh, take the bread and the cup, but when you do, do it in a worthy manner. He said, if there's knowingly something in your life that has been a dishonor to God, something that's been an offense, a hurt to others, thoughts in your own mind, actions of your life, uh, the scripture calls it sin. If there's anything like that in your mind, in your in life, he said, check yourself. <laughs> see, see if there's anything in you that needs confessing and forgiven. And uh, John wrote to the to the believers in his first letter. And he says, if, "If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." So we're going to take a minute now. If there's something that God has prompted in your heart and your mind that you know is wrong, that you need to you need to make right, or things you need to admit and agree with Him about take just the time we have right now in some silence and uh, confess those things to him.
the promise is his that he forgives and he cleanses. Let's take that time. Father, we, um, we give thanks to you uh, for your grace and your mercy towards us. We thank you for sending Jesus. Uh, thank you for his willingness to uh, bear all the judgment that each one of us could bear and all the things that separate us from you, that he, he took those things upon himself on our behalf. We just want to thank you, Lord. That is grace and that is mercy. Help us, Lord, in remembering today that um, our relationship with you is totally based on what Jesus did for us, uh, not uh, our faithfulness here or uh, our achievements in this life or all the goodness that we might generate. Uh, but our relationship with you is just solely based on Jesus. And we remember that today, Lord. We take the bread and we take the cup, Lord, and we do it with thanksgiving that... Uh, we have a relationship with you today through the death of your son. And uh, we embrace that by faith today, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. And not only the forgiveness, but that you wash it all away. I thank you that you take our sin and uh, you throw it as far as the east is from the west. You bury it in the depths of the deepest sea and you remember it no more. And we come to the table of the, the bread and the cup with thanksgiving for what you've done for us in Jesus. And we come in his name. Amen. If you'll uh, take your cup and uh, you can pull the tab off the bottom and find the bread. This is my body, which is for you. As often as you eat it. You remember my death until I come. In this cup, in this cup is the the blood of a new covenant relationship with God for eternity based on my sacrifice, my shed blood in your behalf. This offer you to drink it. Remember my death until I come. Thank you, Lord. One for just open our eyes to see our need for you. 
for the conviction of your spirit in our lives and uh, granting us the ability to, to respond to you and receive what you've given us and uh, granting to us a hope and life that exceeds anything that we could ever find not based on anything around us or our life or circumstances, but simply based on your faithfulness and your death on our behalf. And we give thanks in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able and join as we close singing the last verse in the chorus of the goodness of Jesus. Well, thank you all for coming here today. I wanted to make you aware of some things going around at Grace. First, we have some new members. Uh, Avery Miklia, Jeremiah Clark, Grace Ulibari, Shane McFarlane, Bo Bauman, James Felt, and Sarah and Aiden Torres. So if you see them, the Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Go and do that. Also be thinking of recommendations for elders, deacons, deaconesses. Uh, prayerfully consider those who are qualified to serve in those positions. Recommendation forms are available at the welcome cart as well as at the weekly emails. Uh, midweek service is 7 p.m. on Wednesday here in the Worship Center. We're still going through the Family Matters uh, course. We'll be doing part two of the Word, Prayer, Marriage, Grandparenting, and In-Laws. We also have the Cambodia team that we want to remember in our prayers. They have been there for a whole week. They will be there uh, until the 19th, so continue to pray for them. And lastly, uh, child dedications will be taking place in two weeks here, so if you're interested in that, please go ahead and sign up online. Lastly, let me leave you with the perfect holy word of God in Jude verses 24 through 25, which says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the